The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 15th episode of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So before we get started... I want to remind our listeners once again that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The news professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Again, to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. A lot of people that I talk to are still asking me how to access prior TF7 Radio episodes for playback or just get more information about TF7 Radio and our guests. So aside from hearing us on the Voice America Business Channel, one of the easiest ways you can listen to playbacks of different episodes of the show is to go to www.taskforce7radio.com and hit the Episodes tab. Once there, you can easily scroll through every episode of TF7 Radio that has been aired on Voice America and just listen to one episode after another if you like. Also, for your convenience, you can find all prior Task Force 7 Radio episodes for playback on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, and playerf.com. So whatever your choice, it doesn't matter. We make it easy for you. We're all over the place. So, and don't forget about social media. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And please, if you're a big fan of the show, whether you're on iTunes or one of our social media sites, please help us to get the word out by leaving a review and giving us five stars, as a lot of you have already done. Thanks so much for doing that. So as usual, no shortage of events to talk about. According to a Washington Post article dated January 12, 2018, the same Russian government-aligned hackers who penetrated the Democratic Party have spent the past few months laying the groundwork for an espionage campaign against the United States Senate. The revelations suggest the group, whose nickname is Fancy Bear, and had a hacking campaign that scrambled the 2016 U.S. electoral contest, is still busy trying to gather the emails of America's political elite. And then there was the news that caused pure panic in Hawaii. A false ballistic missile alert had everyone thinking the North Koreans had hacked the state's alert system and sent out the message to cause pure terror across the islands. But so far, Hawaiian officials are saying that it was just human error that caused the alert to go out. And then there was the New York Times article dated January 12, 2018 by Nicole Perloff. Finally gives us some insight into the $100,000 hush money payment given to the hackers who penetrated Uber and compromised 57 million customer, driver, and rider accounts. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into these new revelations about Uber, including the completely classless Thanksgiving Day call that former CSO Joel Sullivan received from Uber executives telling him his employment was terminated while he was preparing Thanksgiving Day dinner. I mean, what, what kind of people make that call on Thanksgiving? Who are these people? Talk about a dysfunctional culture. My goodness. 
Before we get into that, we're going to finish reporting on and analyzing the Jacobs whistleblower letter. So I'm going to jump right into it and pick up where we left off on the last show. So these are great shows to listen to back to back because they're all about the Uber story and what happened over there. And I got to tell you, some of this stuff is really unbelievable. And if it really happened the way it was memorialized in the Jacobs letter, then the problems with Uber are just beginning and are not going to be resolved in an expeditious manner. This is going to go on for some time. So case in point. Recode.net reported on January 11th that several mutual funds have dropped their estimates of the value of Uber in the lead-up to a secondary transaction that similarly dropped the worth of what is the world's most valuable startup. At least three Uber shareholders, Fidelity Investments, Principal Funds, and BlackRock, in recent weeks have disclosed that they no longer feel Uber is worth as much as they once thought it was, the new documents show. Those disclosures come after SoftBank successfully purchased hundreds of millions of shares of the company at a $48 billion valuation, which sounds like a ton until you learn that it was a 30% discount from the $69 billion valuation that private investors value the company at in 2016. Not quite a 30% discount, but pretty close. The valuation lost $21 billion over the course of a year. So forget the percentage, $21 billion is a lot of money. And many suspect that this massive devaluation is a direct result of these cybersecurity scandals. And that's why we're going to flush all this stuff out in the Jacobs letter. This emphasizes how important cybersecurity is to companies and especially startups. And it demonstrates the consequences of what can happen when things go bad. Now, I read a recent post on social media that said, well, Uber was just overvalued. And this is simple, a simple market correction. That may be true. It may have been overvalued. But why was it overvalued is really the question we have to ask. So Fidelity, a large Uber shareholder, said a month ago that its holding of Uber purchase in 2014 was worth $228 million. In its newest disclosure, as of November 30th, it said the same stock was worth about $180 million. That's a 21% drop in the share price. Fidelity's relationship with Uber has shown signs of strain in recent months. The company, which led Uber's Series D financing round, signed on to the effort to oust Travis Kalanick from his job as Uber's CEO. And this past December, Fidelity made an investment in Uber's primary competitor in U.S. markets, Lyft. So, wow, that's saying a lot right there. In principal funds, similarly devalued the ride-hailing company, Principal, as of November 30th, said it valued the holdings of the company at $7.2 million in its large-cap growth fund, down from $8.9 million. That's a 19% drop. And BlackRock, which only discloses its valuations every six months, said as of October 30th that the company was valued at about $268 million. As of April 30th, when Kalanick was still in charge, and even though the company was careening from crisis to crisis, the mutual fund felt Uber was worth $317 million. That's a 16% decline. So no matter how you look at it, these massive declines across the board for Uber and losses into the billions of dollars as their new CEO goes into damage control mode to manage the ongoing public relations nightmare, primarily around cybersecurity operations, is disconcerting. So when I left off last week, I was talking about the various sections of the letter. The next section of the letter detailed illegal intelligence gathering operations that Uber trained their people to conduct and promoted throughout their cyber intelligence team. The letter stated that Uber has engaged and continues to engage in illegal intelligence gathering on a global scale and that this conduct violates multiple laws, including some that are extraterritorial in scope. The letter defined the theft of trade secrets, cites the Economic Espionage Act of 1996, it was as amended by the Defense Trade Secrets Act of 2016, as well as the California Uniform Trade Secret Act, in setting the tone for their allegations that they outline in the letter. So specifically, Uber's marketplace analytics team, here again, uh, hereafter again referred to as the MA team, uh, as, as I will refer to it uh, from now on, exist expressly for the purpose of acquiring trade secrets, code base, and competitive intelligence, including deriving key business metrics of supply, demand, and the function of applications from major ride-sharing competitors globally. So Jacobs is aware, the letter says, that the MA team fraudulently impersonates riders and drivers on competitor platforms, hacks into competitor networks, 
and conducts unlawful wiretapping. Each tactic discussed in detail in the letter. So these tactics are used to obtain trade secrets about the function of competitors' apps, vulnerabilities in the app, including performance and function, vulnerabilities in application security, supply data, including unique driver information, and pricing structures and incentives. Now, you got to wonder, what is some of this information being used for? Specifically, I'd like to know why you need to know the vulnerabilities in a competitor's application security posture. What are you going to do with that? I mean, one could say you could look for the same vulnerabilities in your in your network, in your systems. But if it was easy enough to find in theirs, then it was easy enough to find in yours to begin with. These tactics were employed clandestinely through in a distributed architecture of anonymous services, telecommunications architecture, and non-attributable hardware and software. This setup allows the MA team to make millions of data calls against competitor and government services without causing a signature that would alert competitors to the theft. For instance, a sophisticated competitor wouldn't set thresholds when they see devices attempting to request rides by the hundreds or even thousands in a short period of time. However, if the data calls are diversified across what appears to be multiple devices in a broader period of time, filters would not detect the anomaly. So in the summer of 2016, SSG specifically hired Ed Russo to further develop its intelligence program. Russo was a retired government employee, Uber identified as having language skills and cultural insights that would be effective at gathering intelligence for Uber. His official title was senior risk and threat analyst, but he was actively engaged in human intelligence gathering and identifying market penetration opportunities for Uber in a region of the world that was redacted from the public version of the letter, it doesn't say. So part of his role was to enable competitive intelligence in the theft of trade secrets by recruiting sources within competitor organizations. He vetted insiders and identified those who were willing to provide Uber with competitive trade secrets. Now, I highly doubt that was in his job description, but this is obviously Jacob's description of what he understands and alleges Mr. Russo was hired to do. So Jacobs is aware that Uber used the MA team to steal trade secrets, at least least from Waymo in the U.S., and it appears other entities that are redacted from the document. Now, specifically regarding Waymo in the letter, it says that shortly after the auto acquisition, Ed Russo presented a fictionalized account of SSG's recent contributions to Uber employees, including Jacobs. He asked his audience to consider a situation in which the CEO of a large company sought to acquire a smaller startup with industry-changing technology in the large company's field. Russo, Russo excuse me, boasted that SSG, using ex-CIA field operatives skilled in counter-surveillance, would ensure the secrecy of meetings between the company's CEOs for months before any acquisition was announced or finalized. Given the timing of the presentation... Immediately following Otto's acquisition, when Jacobs and others heard Russo's so-called fictional account, they assumed Russo was alluding to the actual events surrounding the Otto acquisition, meaning he wasn't making up the scenario like he said. So it was really happening in real life. So I don't see a problem with keeping talks about acquisitions mergers and acquisitions secret. I mean, when companies talk, I mean, if if they don't want it to leak out, I mean, obviously that's, I think that's commonsensical, but unless there's something else I'm missing here, some kind of legal issue that I'm missing, I I really don't get the point. Of course, by the time of its acquisition, Auto was just eight months old. Nevertheless, Uber acquired this eight-month-old company at an estimated cost of $680 million. Now, I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there listening to this. Eight months 680 million. Imagine that. Eight months. 680 million. Wow. The letter goes on to say that shortly after the acquisition and just three weeks before the rollout of Uber's autonomous vehicle group in Pittsburgh, Russo, Jacinto, and Nocon traveled to Pittsburgh and educated the team on the using ephemeral communications, non-attributable devices, and false attorney-client privilege designations with the specific intent of preventing the discovery of device, devices, documents, and communications in anticipated litigation. 
These facts corroborate Google's legal theory and pending litigation that Otto was simply a shell company whose sole purpose was to dissemble Uber's conspiracy to steal Waymo's intellectual property. Now, you can see the, 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 the synergy here between these two cases, both federal and criminal, and why the uh, United States Attorney's Office and the DOJ went to uh, the, the civil judge in the Waymo case. And you can, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can listen to the last episode that kind of goes through and steps through all those things that happened. So the, the, the public version of the letter emits a whole bunch of information. And there was a whole bunch of redacted data on unlawfully obtaining trade secrets, remotely accessing confidential data, corporate communications, information on impersonating riders and drivers, identification of key platforms that, that, that were alleged in the letter, and lots of redacted information about competitors, rider, and driver apps. Info on how, how Uber's allegedly stole supply data by identifying possible drivers to boost Uber's market position. An acquired code base, which allowed MA to identify code used by competitors to understand in greater detail how their apps functioned. All very interesting stuff, all redacted. It's pretty crazy. I mean, the letter further states by credibly impersonating both riders and drivers, the MA team could request thousands of riders in a given geographic area to study the responsiveness and capability of competitors' apps, their price quotes, and disposition of available drivers. MA further impersonated prospective customers to ascertain the identity of drivers through their names, license plate numbers, and make and model of their vehicles. Uber then used the information to recruit competitors to Uber's platform. MA also obtained key technical details about how competitors would troubleshoot issues in comparison to Uber and then use that data to develop contingencies to slower impede business operations. So not only was Uber able to obtain their competitors' trade secrets, but they used that data it obtained to allegedly inflate the ultimate valuation of Uber. Hence my comment earlier about the social media post about Uber's valuation was just overpriced. And this was just a typical market correction. And anyone shouldn't, you know, the suggestion is no one should read into it. Yeah. 21 billion market correction. Travis Kalanick explained in a company all hands meeting something that was redacted in the letter, and it doesn't say, describing a value that was inflated by data Uber had unlawfully obtained through the tactics described previously in the letter. And then there was a whole bunch, again, a whole bunch of data that was redacted. Now, I go back to what I stated earlier about the company losing $21 billion in valuation over the last eight months or so. I mean, you've got to ask yourself a question. If this is true, if Uber used the theft of trade secrets and other illicit information obtained through criminal activity to falsely and artificially inflate the valuation of the company, and now that valuation has just been deflated by $21 billion dollars, what is Uber's liability to all the people who purchased Uber at these artificially inflated valuation prices and now are in a world of hurt as Uber's valuation goes from $69 billion to $48 billion in months? That's trouble. The letter describes a competitor who, quote, became the next logical target of MA and SSG activities, where the MA again employed tactics to obtain the competitor's trade secrets with a focus on stealing key supply data to boost Uber's pull of drivers, the function of the app and its vulnerabilities, and then used that data to develop an aggressive counterintelligence campaign with the aim to slow the other company's efforts. That's dirty pull, folks. Dirty pull. Upon arrival... Jacobs delivered the envelope to MA senior manager Kevin Maher and subsequently learned that SIM cards within the envelope would be used to collect intelligence on their competitors' trade secrets. Specifically, the SIM cards were used to fraudulently impersonate customers on their competitors' rider and driver applications. By credibly impersonating riders and drivers, the MA, could, MA team could do a few things. One, develop processes to conduct thousands of data calls to reverse engineer products. Two, identify and recruit supply partner drivers. And number three, derive key competitive business metrics to understand subsidies, available supply, processes for managing surge, and competitive market positions. 
For instance, MA would be able to study key technical details of how competitors had engineered solutions to common problems ride-sharing providers have at scale and in the context of dense population centers. Uber would then use the data to identify possible improvements, gain competitive advantages, or exploit weaknesses of their competitors' platforms. One tactic allegedly used by Uber to obtain trade secrets was by capturing virtual walk-ins, a term for a source who contacts an organization through the Internet to volunteer insider information and is prepared to provide Uber with trade secrets. On at least one occasion in the fall of 2016, Ed Russo vetted a purported virtual walk-in with information regarding something that was, again, redacted from the document. The letter does go on to mention something about maintaining a human intelligence source in a competitor's senior leadership team. That's serious stuff, man. That's serious business. I mean, spies and other companies on their senior leadership team, who knows their boards? As of the date of the letter, Jacobs is still aware Uber still benefits from at least one well-placed human resource with access to a competitor's executives and their collective knowledge of their competitor's ongoing business practices. In targeting a specific competitor of the prior six months of the date of the letter, the MA and SSG focused on collecting comprehensive supply data, including the license, name, and contact information for every single competitor's driver around October and November of 2016. Similarly, MA targeted not only the supply data from the specific competitor, but also key business metrics, business strategy information, and basic, basic functionality of and security of all of their data. Targeting this trade secret data was all aimed to gain an unfair advantage for Uber. Now, I feel like we're talking about a nation-state government operation here, not a cab company. I mean, I want to remind you, we're talking about a cab company just happens to be a very, very rich and powerful cab company. So again, a whole bunch of redacted information from the letter, specifically around members of the MA team personally delivering these collections directly to Kalanick, how the MA team would nail victory representations to the wall in the office, like, you know, the scalp of their enemies illustrating the thought process of the culture. You know, this is victory. And also, I believe, because sometimes it's hard to understand the letter because at points it's really heavily redacted, how someone at Uber proposed that if Uber could hack their competitors' databases and systems and collect all driver information, it would have a perfect set of possible drivers for Uber's platform and could boost supply by targeting these operators and converting them to drivers for Uber. Now, if you're ever sitting in the car and asking an Uber driver about Uber, I, mean, I, I almost uh, religious, religiously, every single one of them will tell you to use Lyft. <laughs> Try it next time. See what they say. Some of them drive for both. So wanting to keep Uber's unlawful tactics under the radar, Clark directed Jacobs to get the initial information over the MA team and that Uber had an in-house team of engineers capable of conducting this type of work. After initial investigation, an unknown person advised that the target database in question, allegedly the one with all the driver's information they wanted to acquire, requires users to individually enter the license plate number of a known taxi driver and enter a CAPTCHA to access the driver's record. An unknown individual, because his name was redacted from the letter, I couldn't see it, explained that he could program a dispersed architecture of non-attributable servers to conduct the data calls over a period of weeks and extract the information without the website's administrators realizing that Uber extracted their entire data set. He was given the green light to proceed with his plan. The data calls needed to be distributed over a network of computers unaffiliated with Uber. It would take approximately 4 million calls for data to cover the full spectrum of, possi of possible uh, computer uh, competitors' taxi license variations, and also explained that he would need to write or purchase a code to defeat the CAPTCHA on this particular website. So within a few days, the Uber employee had overcome these hurdles and began running the program. Within approximately two months, Uber had successfully obtained their competitors' trade secrets with a complete download of its driver database that contained approximately 35,000 taxi driver records. The database was built into a dashboard to be provided to specific teams at Uber, but was not immediately delivered. Uber learned of an ongoing legal trouble at some of its locations and became concerned about what they called an unexpected visitor 
or UEV event. This is a term that describes situations when local authorities might raid an office or show up unexpectedly to request data or seize media that could expose the hack to government authorities. It's unbelievable. I got to take a quick break, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more details from the Jacobs letter detailing how Uber employees allegedly impersonated real people to steal competitor secrets. And we'll be talking about the emails from Uber obtained by the New York Times that finally gives some insight in what happened with that $100,000 hush money payment. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're going to keep talking about the Jacobs whistleblowing letter over at Uber and some of the incredible accusation that the letter contains. Also, I want to remind everyone that Joe Sullivan basically called this letter a total shakedown for money. And I'm still working on bringing Joe on the show. And I really hope he can come and, and give his side of the story because I know that he will be able to shed some light on a lot of these accusations. And I would imagine that what he has to say about the whole thing that went down over at Uber will be very interesting to everyone. So I'm working on it and see if we can make it happen. Uh, unlike so many of the other alleged cybersecurity radio shows out there, I, I'm going to try to shove as much information and cram as much information into a one hour long show as I possibly can for our listeners. So I'm going to jump right back into this really hard. Uh, the Jacobs letter goes on to say that along with the theft of trade secrets, Jacobs observed SSG personnel through the use of what they called LAT operatives and their vendors. Now, as a footnote, LAT operatives, and that's the way it's listed in the, in the letter. I really don't know what that means. Uh, apparently it doesn't really mean anything, but there are CIA trained case officers fielded by Jacinto. So they're capable of collecting foreign intelligence in priority locations for Uber. They're, they're commercially covered, deeply backed, stopped business persons with established reasons to travel to high priority locations important to Uber on little notice. They conduct business meetings, but they do collect intelligence for Uber on the side. So Around early to mid-2016, they quickly became Uber's stable of non-official covert operatives. This independent contractors were given the meaningless acronym LAT. And so it's, it's meaningless, I guess. But it's to protect discussions about this resource and poke fun at Tal Global, a former vendor who provided intelligence collection support to Uber. 
LATs were seen as the opposite of Tau Uber, uh, who of Tau Global, who Uber had discounted or discontinued, excuse me, working with due to their low quality work. So LAT operatives knowingly impersonated actual people over the internet in order to keep tabs on competitors and opposition groups by accessing closed social media groups. This impersonation had the purpose of fraudulently stealing business and gaining a competitive advantage. During the summer of 2016, Jacobs learned that city teams and other locations impersonated partner drivers or taxi operators to gain access to private WhatsApp group messaging channels. And then the letter states how Jacobs further investigated this conduct by searching Uber's internal network, but the specifics of the playbook he found was redacted. The letter only to say that the playbook was created for specific teams to guide them on how to infiltrate such closed social media groups. So there's a book, there's a playbook that says this is how you're going to infiltrate these groups. That's interesting. Jacobs immediately advised Clark of the documentation, removed the document from its location, and admonished the specific team not to conduct such activities. In late October 2016, in a regularly scheduled one-on-one meeting with Clark and Jacinto, Jacobs, once, by the way, one-on-one means one-on-one, not one-on-two, right? So I, don't, I got the noise made a little bit of a typo here, but I guess he was in a group meeting uh, with, with different managers. Jacobus once again raised concerns about the legality and ethics of using impersonation tactics to gather the data that Uber was utilizing to monitor private groups. In one instance, SSG had begun using a vendor, an LAT operative, who was tasked with penetrating opposition groups and collecting information about local political figures and parties, including virtual penetrations and WhatsApp. Now, this is where, if true, I got a big problem with that. Jacobs reported, reported that infiltrating WhatsApp groups was unlawful, but his concerns were ignored. I'm not sure if that's unlawful or not. I don't know. I have to ask an attorney. In another instance, in early January 2017, Jacobs received a presentation that included a section on intel gathering, a slide on driver chat group infiltration, and a link to the specific procedures for infiltrating driver partner chat groups, including the impersonation of actual driver partners, to collect information on growing discontent and possible opposition activities. Upon receipt, Jacobs disclosed the playbook to Clark, who replied, Do I want to know who this is? Jacobs voiced concern, as to its legality, noting that it encouraged intel gathering and described how to penetrate WhatsApp groups. Clark only replied that, quote, this is happening everywhere and I'm not ready to deal with it. End of quote. Clark did not investigate the presumed criminal violation. In late January and early February 2017, as part of SSG's virtual operations capability, otherwise known as VOC, SSG brought in an unknown person or entity because it was redacted from the letter by posing as a sympathetic protester interested in participating in actions against Uber. By doing this, an unknown person or entity illegally gained access to closed Facebook groups and chatted with protesters to attempt to understand their non-public plans and intentions. So to the last point in mid-March 2017, Jacobs learned through members of his former team that Henley surreptitiously gained access and investigated closed or private Facebook groups in order to understand who might protest against Uber. Uh, again, you know, I, I don't know that this violates any laws whatsoever. I mean, unfortunately, the creation of false social media accounts is rampant across the Internet, and I've never seen anyone charged criminally with creating the account unless it's associated with other criminal activity. I mean, the letter goes on to say right after that that this access represents at least a violation of Facebook privacy standards and is unethical. Well, I mean, okay, sure, I get it. It violates Facebook standards, okay? Regarding the privacy of the standards of Facebook, I, I'm not sure if this is even noteworthy. I mean, so what? So the Facebook account gets disabled. They should, Facebook should disable the account. And I don't get it. And, and as, as far as it being unethical, I'm not sure about that either. I mean, it depends on what these protest groups are saying or planning in private. I mean, are they promoting violence against Uber or its employees? Are these intelligence operations serving to protect the safety and soundness of Uber employees and customers? I don't know. 
Is that possible? It very, very well could be possible. Believe me, there's there's a lot of people out there in these in protest groups that plan to do illegal things. These are all questions that astute intelligence professionals would ask. So I would ask that our listeners think about these same issues as well. Now, whether impersonating someone on the internet to create a social media account is a violation of law. I've, to my knowledge, I've never seen anyone prosecuted for that. So I, I, don't, know, I, didn't, I don't know what law that would be. I'm not an attorney, so we'll try to get someone to opine on that. But um, I think in here it suggests that at it, it's at least in, in a violation of Facebook privacy standards and, and is unethical, which means I'm not sure they understand that it's a violation of the law either. Even though they previously stated, it kind of states now that, well, maybe it's at least this. So then the letter, go, the letter gets to unlawful surveillance. Specifically, the letter says that during his employment, Jacobs observed conduct that violated the California Penal Code, Section 631 and 632. Section 632 prevents a person or entity from intentionally using any kind of machine or instrument to tap into or make an unauthorized connection into a telephone line. It also disallows willfully reading or trying to read the contents of any message that has passed over a wire unless there is permission from all parties to the message. So it bars the use, attempted use, or communication of any information gained in this way. And lastly, it makes it illegal to aid or conspire to do any of the above. The California Penal Code, Section 632, makes it illegal to intentionally, without the consent of all parties to the communication, use a device to amplify or record a conversation. And now the reason I read that was because that's specifically in the law, whereas I don't see that any specific law was quoted as to the violation of impersonating someone's social media account. But this, recording someone's voice without their permission, seems to be a clear violation of the California Penal Code. So the letter specifically states that Uber surveillance and collections operations against redacted computers, competitors, executives, which was, was removed from the letter, also apparently violates the Federal Wiretap Act, 18 U.S.C. 2510. So 2510 and 2511 prohibits the interception, attempted interception and use of oral communications and those communications other by a person having a reasonable expectation of privacy in the communication. So over a two to three week period, Beginning in early June 2016, Henley, Jacinto, and Sullivan coordinated multiple surveillance and collection operations against an individual or company whose identity was redacted from the letter. So this included recording of mobile phone video and or photography during private events. To do this, multiple surveillance teams infiltrated private event spaces at hotel and conference facilities that the group of competitor executives used during their stay. In at least one incident... The, the LAT operatives deployed against these targets were able to record and observe private conversations among the executives, including their real-time reactions to a press story that Uber would receive $3.4 billion in funding from the Saudi government. So importantly, these collection tactics were tasked directly by Sullivan on behalf of Uber's CEO, Travis Kalanick, the letter says. So upon information and belief, these two Uber executives, along with other members of Uber's executive team, received live intelligence updates, including photographs and video from Jacinto while they were present in the war room. Now, uh, quite frankly, these accusations would have me believe that, that a, a trained former United States attorney, assistant United States attorney, and a seasoned legal and security veteran, both in the public and private sector, purposely deployed private resources to unlawfully record conversations that he knows were illegal. So, look, I, I'm not taking anyone's side here because I don't know what the truth is. I'm just providing analysis on this, on this whistleblower letter. But this, quite frankly, is just hard for me to believe. It sounds like some pretty sensational stuff. I mean, I've been in this business a long time, and I'm telling you, it's hard to swallow, all right? This is the type of thing that I would like to hear from Joe about because I want to understand how this even gets into this letter. I mean, how does this even get mentioned here? I mean, the letter goes on to say that as proof or perhaps to gloat about the surveillance, Jacinto later showed Jacob's pictures and screen captures from the unlawfully recorded content. As part of this surveillance, Jacinto asked Jacobs to develop 
targeting packages on specific individuals, leaders, to improve SSG efforts to collect intelligence on these figures and work to develop a mole or internal source of information among their competitors' leadership teams, which was redacted from the letter once again. So Jacobs had concerns over the legality of this assignment and ultimately chose not to respond to the request. Instead, he began developing his own strategy for intelligence gathering that did not involve tactics which Jacobs believed to be illegal. He says in the letter that additionally, Uber violated California Penal Code Section 632 and likely the Federal Wiretap Act by improperly recording calls following allegations of sexual harassment by a former Uber employee. And Uber did not tell the participants that the call was being recorded and accordingly had not received permission from the call participants to record it as required by law. And this was an especially egregious violation given the sensitivity of the subject of the call and the stated objective to hold anonymous and candid listening sessions. So not only did Uber unlawfully record the call, but the investigations team and others redacted from this letter that weren't listed, used the recording, along with the other egregious and purposeful violations of personal privacy to identify individuals whose whose, uh, names were left out of the letter that were supposedly involved in this sexual harassment um, allegation. So the employee that was uh, found out subsequently separated from Uber. Um, so the details around that, not really known. Hang in there. We're going to take a short pause for our commercial sponsors, but we'll be right back with the analysis on the New York Times story that sheds light on what actually happened with the Uber hack that exposed 57 million rider and driver accounts, including what allegedly happened with that $100,000 hush money payment. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. So here it is. New York Times article last week authored by Nicole Perloff, says basically that CSO Joe Sullivan received an email from a hacker telling him about a vulnerability in regards to their bug bounty program. So the, the, the letter comes, you know, hello, Joe. I, I found a major vulnerability in, your, in Uber, in your systems. And so the email appeared to be no different from other messages that Sullivan usually receives as, his, as the chief security officer from Uber. And also other members of his team routinely received through the company's bug bounty program, which pays hackers for reporting holes in their security posture. So a lot of people were speculating that it was a bug bounty gone bad, not a hack. I've been hearing this for a long time, hesitant to say too much about it on the radio because it was, couldn't get anybody to really 
uh, confirm that that was the case. But apparently the New York Times have finally done that. And it looks like it was part of a bug bounty uh, uh, program which those payments were made. So the details say that uh, Uber's eventual $100,000 payment to the hacker, which was initially celebrated internally as a rare win in corporate security, has since turned into a public relations debacle for the company. In November, when Uber disclosed the 2016 incident and how the information of 57 million driver and rider accounts had been at risk, the company's chief executive since August, Dara Khajro Hashahi, called it a failure that it had not been, uh, people had not been notified earlier. And Mr. Sullivan, a security lawyer, and Craig Clark were also fired. So in the weeks since, Uber's handling of the hacking has come under some major scrutiny. Not only did Uber pay an outsized amount to the hacker, $100,000 is a lot of money, and usually a lot less than that, but it also did not disclose that it had been briefly lost control of so much consumer and driver data until later in the year. And I think really that's the issue here, and that's what's going to generate a lot of discussion. So the behavior raised questions of a cover-up and lack of transparency, as as well as whether the payment really was just a ransom paid by a security operation that had acted on its own for too long. So the hacking is now the subject of at least four lawsuits with attorney generals in five states investigating whether Uber broke laws on data breach notifications. In addition, the United States attorney for Northern California has begun a criminal investigation into the matter. So most of all, the hacking in Uber's response have fueled a debate about whether companies have crusaded to lock up their systems and can scrupulously work with hackers without putting themselves on the wrong side of the law. The time goes on to say that this account of Uber's hacking and the company's response was based on more than a dozen interviews with people who dealt with the incident, many of whom declined to be identified because of the confidentiality of their exchanges. Many are current and former members of Uber's security team who defended their actions as a prime example of how executives should respond to security problems. The New York Times also obtained more than two dozen internal Uber emails and documents related to the incident. In a statement, Mr. Sullivan disputed the notion that the 2016 episode was a breach and said Uber had treated it as an authorized vulnerability disclosure. I was surprised and disappointed when those who wanted to portray Uber in a negative light quickly suggested this was a cover-up, Sullivan said, adding that he was proud his engineers had been able to fix the issue before it could be abused. He declined to discuss disclosure because of the active state investigations. Matt Kalman, an Uber spokesman, said, We stand by our decision to very publicly disclose the 2016 data breach, not because it was easy, but because it was the right thing to do. Through a spokesman, Mr. Kalanick declined to comment. So according to emails obtained by the New York Times, Uber soon discovered that some of its employees had left certain computer code known as keys on a programming site called GitHub. Those keys had allowed Preacher, which is the nickname of the, the hacker that they gave, uh, because he was preaching to them all the time how bad their security was, to gain access to Uber's Amazon web servers, where it stored source code as well as 57 million customer and driver accounts, including driver's license numbers, numbers for some 600,000 Uber drivers. So it was a major oversight, and to fix it, Uber had to inform everyone that the company was temporarily shutting down access to GitHub. Emails between the hacker and Mr. Fletcher, which is an engineer over at Uber, continued, and some... Mr. Fletcher thanked the hacker for helping the company fix the oversight. In two emails, Preacher's motivations appeared to veer closer toward blackmail. And this isn't the problem, I think. This is the, this is the problem with this kind of thing. In, in one, he demanded high compensation for his findings. After Mr. Fletcher said the company's maximum bounty was $10,000, Preacher said he and his team would only accept six digits. And herein lies the problem. This is why... In my mind, it's reportable. You don't know the ethical compass of the person you're speaking with. You just don't. You don't know them at all. So you lost access to the data temporarily. This person's not an employee of Uber, of your company. He's demanding compensation that you might not be willing to pay. And you don't know what he's going to do if you don't pay it. And quite frankly, you can't guarantee that he deleted all the information that you asked him to delete, and he didn't sell it to someone else after you gave him a payment of $100,000. Mr. Fletcher said he would need to seek authorization for a $100,000 payment and would need preacher's reassurances that he would delete the data that he had downloaded. 
Mr. Fletcher also pushed the hacker to take payment through HackerOne, which requires bounty recipients to disclose their real identities for tax requirements. Mr. Fletcher drew further details about the hacker through emails, including tidbits about his identity, his internet hosting provider, the location of his computer, and proof that he deleted his copy of Uber's downloaded data by looking at a virtual copy of his system provided by his host. Uh. According to the emails, Uber at one point extended preacher and all expenses paid trip to San Francisco, where the company is based. Uber asked the hacker to discuss his security techniques and offered to introduce him to companies that might be interested in his skills. But preacher declined. By then, Uber's executives had decided what to do. Kalanick signed off on the $100,000 payment so long as the hacker signed an agreement to destroy any data exposed in his discovery, according to the emails. Preacher's trail of digital breadcrumbs eventually led to a 20-year-old whose first name was Brandon and who's living in a Florida trailer park with his family, according to the emails. In one email, Uber offered to send someone to meet Brandon at a local coffee shop. Brandon declined to leave his home and suggested that the employee meet him there. It was there that Brandon signed agreements assuring Uber that he had deleted the data that he had downloaded. The Times was unable to learn Brandon's full name and email to the John Doe's account was also bounced back. Just, be, just because you can see evidence of a deletion of, of data doesn't mean that data wasn't stored someplace else, moved someplace else, provided to someone else, screenshots weren't taken. You can't guarantee that that data is not stored someplace else in some shape or form. So now what is that issue is whether Uber executives broke the law with the $100,000 payment and should have quickly notified customers or officials of the discovery. The issue is not legally clear cut. So laws concerning bug bounties are ambiguous. DOJ weighed into the bug bounty disclosures for the first time in July and largely left it to organizations to decide what access they will authorize for hackers and what they can do with the data. In Uber's case, its bounty guidelines authorize and encourage hackers to look for vulnerabilities that expose its most sensitive user data. Breach disclosures differ from state to state, and the state laws most relevant to Uber's case require disclosure if names are exposed in combination with driver's license numbers in a breach of security. Brandon received two payments of $50,000 each from Uber on December 8, 2016, according to the emails, and Uber continued trading emails with Brandon until during 2017 until the conversations just kind of dwindled off. So last fall, when two outside law firms for Uber learned about the payment to the hacker, they advised the company that the incident should have been disclosed. And according to an Uber employee familiar with the matter, Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Clark, the lawyer who directly oversaw the bounty payment, were fired for not seeking outside counsel on the issue of whether to disclose this information, this person said to the New York Times. So that prompted a ridiculous call to Mr. Sullivan while he was preparing Thanksgiving dinner, according to two people f- familiar with the matter, and he was fired effective immediately. I've run out of time. I've got to go. Don't forget to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to catch a recap of tonight's show and other cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 